don't know if we're expecting more people or not, but let's get started. I'm going to begin uh, with prayer, and then we will dive into Isaiah uh, and just get started on the book. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for the day that you've given to us. Thank you for this new year and for bringing us uh, through the past year. We thank you for your mercies, which are new to us every morning and are new to us every year. We, we thank you for your word and for entrusting it to us. We ask that we'd be good stewards of it today, that you would, by your spirit, use your word to transform our hearts and to cause our, our minds to be conformed to the mind of Christ. And we pray that in so doing, you would transform us and glorify yourself. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Isaiah 1. Um, we're going to, I don't know how much time each of these sections is going to take us, but we may just get through the first verse of Isaiah. Now that will not be indicative of the pace that will follow for the rest of the study, but um, in this particular case, I think it's worth zeroing in on verse 1 because verse 1 sort of sets the context for the whole book. Um, and here's what it says, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, there's actually a lot in here that's pretty important for understanding the rest of the book. The first thing is that we're introduced to Isaiah, but we'll, we'll, we'll put that to one side because, uh, you know, we'll learn more about Isaiah as it goes on. But, but what is expected of us when we come to this book is that we at least understand the historical context of verse 1. So in other words, if you were an original reader of this and, and you read uh, verse 1, you would know the geography and you would also know the chronology. Both of those things would be clear. And so let's talk about the geography first and then, and then the chronology. The first uh, thing that's mentioned is that this is about, this whole thing is about Judah and Jerusalem. Now, now, actually, what's really interesting, and we will, we will just at least have some time to devote to this uh, later today. What's interesting is, is that it starts in Judah and Jerusalem, but what we're going to see is what happens in Judah doesn't stay in Judah. What happens in Jerusalem doesn't stay in Jerusalem. It actually has global consequences. It's a little bit like, um, I was thinking about this. Uh, as we are reading through the, uh, the, the accounts of Jesus' birth. And you remember in Matthew's gospel, uh, Matthew starts out with this genealogy about uh, Jesus being the son of Abraham, the son of David, and, and it kind of culminates with saying he's the Messiah, he's the Jewish Messiah. But what's interesting about Matthew is if you turn to the end of Matthew, what, uh, what do we find at the end? We find the Great Commission where Jesus says to his disciples, Go into all nations and, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, etc. And so one of the questions that you're supposed to have in your mind in Matthew is, how do we move from this very, what appears to be this very Jewish-centered Messiah to all nations? Um, and, and, and Matthew has that in mind, and we know he does, because remember in Matthew's Gospel, who the very first people are to come and worship Jesus. Um, it's the, those, those wise men who come to worship him. And that's significant. It's significant for Matthew because what Matthew is sort of showing us is 
Listen, what's happening here in this, what would appear to be this kind of backwater Roman province, actually has global significance. And Isaiah is a little bit like that. Because Isaiah says, begins by saying this is about Judah and Jerusalem, but we'll turn to Isaiah 66 at the end. Isaiah 66 says, this is the way that God's going to work to create a new heavens and a new earth. So, so it starts there, but it's never, it's never just narrowly localized. So sometimes I think people miss that. They read things about Israel in the Old Testament and they assume, okay, we're just staying there. But that's never how it works in the Old Testament and certainly not how it works in the New Testament. You're never just staying there. Because what happens there, you know, just like in Matthew, Israel's Messiah is actually the, the king of the whole world. Israel's Messiah is actually the one who, who all nations need to listen to. And, and, and same thing is true here. The message, and Isaiah is actually going to make this really clear as we'll see. The message to Judah and Jerusalem actually turns out to be a message to everybody. And the lessons learned in Judah and Jerusalem and the promises fulfilled in Judah and Jerusalem are actually for everyone. And so if you read through Isaiah, and, and I, would, I would urge you to do that, particularly as we study it, as you read through Isaiah, you, you'll be puzzled because if, you, if you're stuck on verse 1 and, and you don't realize kind of where Isaiah is going with this, you'll, you'll, you'll kind of stumble over the fact that there are these whole middle sections that are about the nations. But that's because what happens, the, the, one of the key insights of the prophets is, what happens in Judah and Jerusalem and what God does there is actually about the whole globe. It, it has global significance. And, you know, we could talk more about that. Moses says that um, in, in Deuteronomy. But, but it's really clear in Isaiah. All right, but I want to actually find, figure out what's going on in Judah and Jerusalem in, that, in this time. And I want to do this in two ways. First, I want to draw a little map that, you know, Lindsay's good at, at drawing, apparently. And I am, so that's here, I'm here. This is the opposite end of the spectrum. Any resemblance to scale here is purely coincidental. So if we have, if we have our Mediterranean Sea here, uh, and, then, and then we'll go, uh, here's, here's Egypt, right? The Nile River is going into the Mediterranean. And then, and then over here, we've got you know, the Tigris and Euphrates River. Um, and, and in the ancient world, uh, the two great powers... It kind of toggled back and forth, but in the Mediterranean, um, at least in this part of the Mediterranean, the two great powers were either here or, or somewhere over here. And that's, you know, Babylon, Assyria, the Neo-Babylonian Empire, the Neo-Assyrian Empire. You know, it's all, it's all kind of coming from here. And, and, and here what you have is, is this little spot in, in between, um, which is... Uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, the land of Israel, and it gets divided up uh, by this point so that you have Israel up here and Judah down here. But the thing to note about this is that although it doesn't look like it, even in a real map, um, it's, it, they're, they're right in between the two great powers. Um, and the reason why they're right in between is if you want to go from Egypt to this area over here, or you want to go the other way, you have to go through this land. This is, this is desert, basically, um, and, and, and you can't, it's, it's sort of difficult to navigate, certainly on a large scale, you can't really navigate. 
So, so, so in, in God's providence, he settles his people in, in a land that is right in between the two major powers of the ancient world, of this side of the Mediterranean, in the ancient world. And so there's always this tension in the minds of the people because they're, they're very conscious of the fact that they're right in the middle, that they're in this kind of no man's land, and it's always going to be fought over by both of these powers because if they want to connect the trade routes either direction, this is key. So it's kind of an interesting thing to think about historically, uh, how God does this, because it's not as if there are these tremendous natural resources here, or, you know, massive rivers. I mean, there's a river, but, you know, it's not the Nile, and it's not the Euphrates or the Tigris. Uh, but, but on the other hand, it, it, it is a very, it's, it's just land that's caught in the middle. And, and that's going to play a key role because a lot of what Isaiah is going to say to them is, is sort of uh, undergirded, premised by this, this notion that, hey, I know that you're worried about what's going to happen from up here. And I know that you're considering maybe making an alliance with these guys down here. But, but what you actually need to do, even though it appears that you're caught in the middle and you've got to pick sides or you've got to placate one or the other or, 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 or whatever, actually what you need to do, even though you're getting crushed by both ends, is you, you just need to trust in the Lord. And the Lord, what the Lord is going to do is he's going to protect you from these two, um, you know, the, the two great empires of the ancient world. But, but imagine the test of faith that that was mm -hmm. for these people. Because from a political perspective, a geographical perspective, a military perspective, you know, they are, they are, they, they're not always fighting a two-front war, but they're always aware that they could be fighting a two-front war. They've got to kind of have eyes looking both directions all the time. And so particularly for the kings, who are trying to sort this out from the perspective of, you know, leading the nation, they're, they're well aware of everything that's happening here. Um, and they're always well aware of what's happening down here because that's, you know, that's kind of, that's the world that they always live in. So that's true all the time in the Old Testament, but it's very pronounced in Isaiah's time because what we're going to see in Isaiah's time is that actually um, Isaiah's, the, the people in Judah and Jerusalem, the southern area, are not only aware of them and aware of them, they actually see these guys coming up and taking out um, that, that little northern kingdom. So, I mean, it's, then it's right on their doorstep. So, if you're in Jerusalem, I mean, I mean, this area is, what, the size of New Jersey, maybe? I mean, it's not big. Um, and, 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 and it's right on your doorstep. And, and there are moments, even in Isaiah that we'll get to where the kings of Israel literally have armies from here outside of Jerusalem. Like they're in, so, so now it's not northern kingdom. They're, they're right there. They're outside the walls. And, and what do you do in that situation? Who do you turn to? Um, and we'll see that sometimes we'll get these zoom lens looks at what the kings do. And sometimes what they do is they, 
they, um, they again they try to they try to make an alliance or they try to placate or they try to threaten they try all these things that you you'd normally try to do and but it's, that's not what they're called to do and, and and then there's also this issue because remember there are layers to this it's not just military there's also this question of who do you worship because if you see Think about this in our context. If you see the, the people over here prospering abundantly, or at least appearing to prosper abundantly, maybe even appearing to be uh, impossible to defeat from your perspective, and, and you think to yourself, well, what is it that makes them so strong? And the answer that they give is, well, we worship these gods, and these gods are stronger than your gods. Well, that then... That adds a, another layer to it, doesn't it? Because then you start to scratch your head and say, you know what, maybe, maybe I'm actually living my life the wrong way. Maybe, maybe I've actually made a huge mistake. Because it seems like the people who don't worship the Lord and who worship these other popular gods actually do a lot better than me. And so, you know, so think about all the ways this is coming at them. This is coming at them from a military perspective. They see it. I mean, they're seeing armies. They're hearing about armies. But it also comes at them from a theological perspective because those armies are not shy about saying, here's what you need to do. You need to give up serving your God and serve ours instead. And then it'll go a lot easier for you. In fact, actually, um, you won't have any problems at all. And you'll be as successful as we are. And that is a, I mean... It, doesn't, it shouldn't take much for us to translate that into our own lives and into our own kind of way of thinking. You know, you look at other people's lives and you, you, you think, well, they're not constrained by some of the things that constrain me. And, and actually, it seems like they live for themselves and, or for whatever value system they have. And, and, it, and it works. It appears to work. And I mean, we, you, know, you know enough stories, you know, it's, it's not quite that simple. But, but at, a, at a superficial level, it can appear that way. And, and you sort of scratch your head and say, why, you know, why am I just in this constant slog? Why am, I, why am I keeping pressing on when it just seems like the easier path would be to just do what everybody else is doing and, and, and follow the gods they're following? And that seems to work. So, you know, it, it, it's intense. And, and there's an intense test of faith in... Um, in, in Isaiah, and there's this one verse at one point where Isaiah confronts one of the kings, and this, this might be almost a theme verse for Isaiah, at least at a personal level, where he says, um, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you won't stand at all. And what, it, what he's saying is that actually, if you give in to this, if you abandon the Lord, or if you embrace some other God or other way of dealing with life, um, actually what's going to happen in the end is you're going to be totally destroyed. Um, it doesn't appear that way, but that's that Isaiah has to keep telling them. That this is, you know, th this judgment this judgment is real. All right, so what? Uh, let, me, let me give a little more of the chronology and then we'll look at some of these kings. So in, um, it starts... We know this from Isaiah 6, which is maybe one of the more familiar passages. Remember, Isaiah is, is confronted by the Lord. Here am I, send me. 
Okay, and, that, and it says that that's in the year that King Uzziah died. And, and so that's when Isaiah is commissioned, in the year that King Uzziah died. So when it mentions these kings at the end, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, we know that we're talking about Isaiah's ministry starting right at the end of Uzziah's um, reign, and then going through Jotham, Ahaz, and, and Hezekiah. So um, let me give you some, some years on this. It, uh, it doesn't not critical that you remember them, but I just want you to understand what's happening. So um, Uzziah dies, some of these are approximate years, approximately 740 BC. Now, Uzziah had reigned for about 50 years. He, he had become king in about 791, so he had a long reign. Um, and then, it, but in, in, in 745, so Uzziah dies in 740-ish, in 745, so a little bit before that, um, Tiglath-Pileser II is rising up here. And so it, all these things are happening at once. This long reign that's relatively stable has ended. And these guys are starting to get power again, which happened from time to time. And this was a, this was a major one. Actually, it's Tiglath-Pileser III. Um, Egypt is still a power at the same time. And, and by the time you get near the end of Isaiah's ministry in 701, um, there's a movement coming directly on Jerusalem. So that's kind of what's happening. Now, let's talk about Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Um, let's look at Second uh, Kings. Let's look at Second Kings really quick. And just get a, a feel for who these guys are. Unless, I mean, if you already know, then... Maybe this is just review, but um, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Um, now, let's um, start with, um, so we'll start with Second uh, Second Kings 15. Uh, we'll start with, with Jotham. Um, I'll give you the story of Uzziah really quickly. Uzziah was overall a very good king. And again, he reigned for about 50 years. Uzziah had a tragic um, fall at the end because what Uzziah did at a certain point is he decided that he wanted to go into the temple and offer incense before the Lord. And kings weren't allowed to be priests. Priests weren't allowed to be kings. Um, Uzziah, though, you know, he was gen generally a, a believer, a follower of the Lord, but he wants to go in, and so he does. And um, the Lord strikes him with leprosy because of that. And, um, and, and, and Uzziah's reign, in general, again, it ends fairly well, but, but that's the kind of the big mark at the end, is that he went before the Lord, tried to offer incense, was judged by the Lord. Which, incidentally, makes what Isaiah goes through in Isaiah 6 much scarier, right? Because it says, I was, I was, he had this vision of being in the temple. And he saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe was filling the temple. And, you know, that's where Uzziah basically was judged. And Isaiah is brought in there. And, and, and anyway, you know what happens. Well, Jotham. Let's look at Jotham. Um, 2 Kings 15, 32. I'm going to just, I'm just going to hit a couple high points. Verse 33, he was 25 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. 
Verse 34, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah has done. Nevertheless, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. Um, so just a quick thumbnail sketch from Kings. Jotham was generally a good king, but he didn't make great efforts to actually rid the people of false worship. He himself was a worshiper of the Lord. He himself was not actively disobedient. The people underneath him were unchanged. All right, that's Jotham. Let's look at let's look at Ahaz um, next in chapter sixteen. Um, and there's a lot about Ahaz because Ahaz actually has an encounter with some other kings. He actually faces the battle in a way that Jotham didn't. Um, but let's pick up in Second Kings sixteen two. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. So that's the northern kingdom. Uh, he even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. So he goes back to ancient Canaanite worship, um, that have been gone for hundreds of years. He kind of has this return to, to this ancient, uh, terrible uh, worship that involved child sacrifice. Um, and he sacrificed, verse 4, and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. So remember that, because Ahaz, we're going to encounter Ahaz. But this is what Second Kings says about Ahaz. Ahaz basically didn't obey the Lord, wasn't a believer, offered his son as a sacrifice, the whole, the whole thing. And, and it's going to talk about um, what Ahaz did when he encountered real trouble in the way of uh, uh, battle. We'll, we, don't, we won't deal with that right now. Um, let's then move to Hezekiah. Uh, so going forward a couple of chapters, Second uh, Kings 18. And here's what... We'll, we'll read about Hezekiah, beginning in verse 2. He was 25 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. Uh, verse 3, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze servant, serpent that Moses had made. For until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it, it was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from Watchtower to the Fortified city. So we've got Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. Those are the three main kings that Isaiah is going to be preaching to and under whom the people are going to be living. Jotham was relatively good. He was a believer, but he didn't really take active measures to destroy the idolatrous high places. Ahaz was wicked in every respect. He didn't just not you know, knocked down the high places. He embraced all of that and he took it even farther. He, he, he went and, and did all these terrible Canaanite practices. 
And then Hezekiah was the best of the three. Hezekiah tried to undo what Ahaz had done and, and trusted the Lord and, and actually went further either, either, even than Jotham and Uzziah because he actually actively attacked and went after these high places and tried to take them out in Judah. So, so that's, the general, that's the general gist of Isaiah's ministry. Uh, one terrible king, two, two believing kings, but, you know, with, with sort of mixed results. But bear that in mind because we're going to meet each of these kings in, on the pages of Isaiah. And, and knowing the big evaluation of their life, the big kind of, you know, final analysis is helpful because we're going to see them one-on-one -on -one with Isaiah at various points. And um, even Hezekiah, as good as he is, and Kings, you know, Second Kings basically puts him in the top tier, you know, one of the best two or three kings in all of Judah. Um, and, 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 and yet, even Hezekiah, it, it's a, he does so many things well in Isaiah, but it's just, you see the pressure he's under and the way in which he actually does compromise a little bit at one point. And, and, and it's just a, it's a poignant view of this generally good and godly man. All right, let's, let's go back then to Isaiah. Any questions about that? that that's the historical? Yeah. I do have one question. Um, so Hezekiah and Ahaz are yes. both compared to David. Correct. Good or bad. But Jotham is only compared to Uzziah. Is there some kind of significance about, like, Jotham's going to, he wasn't as good as David, so... Yeah, he, I don't know why he doesn't mention David there. The, the writer of Kings doesn't mention David there. I think with Ahaz and Hezekiah, at that point, they're far enough removed from Uzziah that the person, the real gold standard is David here. Mm -hmm. um, and so we'll go back to him. And that's usually how Kings operates and Chronicles. That the gold standard is David, um, but uh, but you know I, I think with, with the reason why um, Jotham is compared to Uzziah is just because that's his immediate predecessor. I mean, they actually, um, if you notice, Ahaz is also compared with Jotham, so there is that you know immediate father and then David. Uh, but but you're right. I think that Jotham doesn't have the comparison with David made. I'm not exactly sure why. All right, um, so now let's look at, I want to do just, just one, kind of one more thing today, um, which is look at the very beginning of the book and say, what's the verdict? Because actually Isaiah does something interesting, or the Lord through Isaiah does something interesting in that um, we get the verdict right at the beginning. Uh, but then I also want to compare that to the end, because because. This is a good, I think, a good technique when you come to any book of the Bible. Um, it, it works, really works in almost every book of the Bible, although with some of the epistles, it not quite, doesn't quite uh, play out this way. But in, in narrative books, if you look at the beginning and the end, or in prophetic books, if you look at the beginning and the end, you, 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 that, that's pretty revealing in terms of what the arc, overall arc of the book is. You know, it it kind of shows you what questions you should be asking and what observations you should be making. Just like I said with Matthew. You know, Matthew starts with Abraham, David, the exile, you know, and, and, and then it ends with all nations. And, and you think, oh, that's, okay, that's interesting. That's, that's really a, a key part.
part of what he's trying to say. Um, so let's look at Isaiah at the beginning. What's the overall verdict? Um, the overall verdict is really spelled out in verses 2 and 3. Hear, O heaven, and, and, and I want you to think about the judgment language here. He's, he's sort of like gathering together all, the, all of creation to listen to this verdict. So, so bringing the heavens, the earth, everybody come and listen. Just listen to what I'm about to say. Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. So the overall verdict is, I've brought them up, I've given them all the things I, that they needed, but at the end of the day, they don't know me, they don't understand me, they're not following my ways. Now, what he then does in verses 4 through, um, really through uh, 8, um, is he goes through, and, I, and I'm just going to uh, mention this, and we can't do all the cross-referencing, but what he does is he, he shows all these categories of curses that they're suffering from because they don't know him. And those categories are taken directly from the book of Deuteronomy. If you read at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses says, here are the curses that are going to come upon you if you don't obey the Lord. And these are the curses. I mean, they're like encapsulated versions. So, so for instance, in chapter 4, they're, they're, they're going to have children who deal corruptly. In 5 and 6, their overall health is going to be bad. They're going to be bruised and, 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 and have raw wounds and, and, and all these things are going to be true. You think of like a body that's just beaten up. The land itself in verses 7 and 8, is going to be desolate. Um, and it, it says they're like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field. Like, you know how you drive through, um, you know, when when uh, when I used to drive through, uh, just once you get outside of, like, the, the suburban counties of Philadelphia, it gets very rural, and you have all these little um, shacks in the middle of fields that used to serve a purpose, but they're just falling down now. That, that's what he says Israel is like. Uh, like a besieged city. And, and, and here's the verdict in verse 9. And Paul quotes this in Romans 9. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So, so the verdict of Israel, on Israel is, they don't know me, they don't understand me, and, and there is a remnant, there's a small group of believers there, and if there weren't that small little group of believers, it would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. It would just be leveled. There would be nothing there. Now, here's the interesting part. At the moment when, we don't know exactly when Isaiah preached this sermon. It comes at the beginning of the book, but we know the book isn't quite in chronological order because chapter 6 is his call. Um, we don't know exactly when he preached it, but likely when he preached this, it was not, it wasn't, it didn't look that way. You know, it didn't look quite that bad. But, but he says, That's, this is what I'm seeing. This is what, how the Lord sees it. The Lord sees it as totally death. It certainly didn't look like Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, it wasn't leveled. Um, and, and yet from the Lord's perspective, that's what it was. Now, why? Why is it? Well, um, 
he he uh, he says in in beginning in verse ten and going through verse twenty, he says that the main the main um, example of this, and this is this is really this is really relevant. The the main example of this, the main place where you can see this and know that it's true, like Exhibit A, is is their vain worship of me. That that's that's Exhibit A of the problems in Judah. Um, look at look at verse ten. Um, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I've had enough of burnt offerings and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls, lambs, goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you the trampling of my courts? Now, now think about this. What Isaiah says is exhibit A. It is not, is not that you're not coming to worship. Right? That's not what he means when he says your worship is, is exhibit A. It's not that you're not showing up. It's that you are showing up, but in showing up, you're actually making a mockery of the whole thing. And, and I have, you're, you're not entering my courts with joy, you're trampling my courts. You're not bringing to me these, these offerings for worship. I, I can't even stand your offerings for worship anymore. Your, your feasts, your festivals... I cannot endure them. Uh, my soul hates them, he says in verse 14. When you spread out your hands, meaning this is how you pray, right? When you come to pray before me, I don't even care. I turn my face away. I hide my eyes from you. You make many prayers. I'm not going to listen to any of them. Um, why? Because, um, really because they're harboring sin and idolatry and then coming in to worship the Lord. So exhibit A of Israel's problem is not all the people, you know, if we were to use kind of our, our language today, it's not the people who aren't coming to church. It's the people who are. But, but the reality is there's no, there, first of all, there's, 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 they're coming with a double-mindedness because they, they, really, they really care about these other gods, not about me. And also, look at what he says, that they're also coming thinking that those things are earning them something and not understanding the dynamic of, of salvation. Because look at verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, then you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So these people were idolatrous, sinful, harboring sin in their hearts, but also misunderstanding what their worship was even about. When, when the reality was the whole basis for it had to be the Lord working to save them. That's why it's so important. You know, you can, you can have churches, and we've, we've seen this, we've seen this in the last 50 years, uh, in, in our, you know, hometowns. You can have churches that do the same things for a long time, but if the if the gospel isn't proclaimed, then it's it's meaningless. If people don't understand that we're coming because of what God has done for us in cleansing us from our sin, uh, then then it's just vain. It's all it's all in vain. So 
Look at, verses 20, look at verse 21, and then I'm going to use this to jump to the end. How the faithful city has become a whore, she who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers, your silver has become dross, and your best wine mixed with water. So the city is totally um, corrupted. Do you have to go? Yeah, it's okay. Fire. Okay. Oh, Lindsay, I didn't... Do you sing in the yeah. fire? She does. I didn't realize that. She's kind of off and on. Okay. She's at Clemson, but she Well, thank you both for serving us in that way. Um, but now look at this really quick, just, just to see the contrast. Turn to Isaiah 66. So this is the faithful city, right? It's, it's damaged. It's, it's corrupted. And, and yet look at... Look at 66. Um, verse, um, uh, verse 7. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I who cause to bring forth shut the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her and joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight for her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip, and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass, and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and he shall show his indignation against his enemies." So if you, uh, one way you could think about Isaiah is with these bookends at, in chapter 1 and in chapter 66. It really is a tale of two cities, but it's the, it's the same city both times. It's a tale of two Jerusalems. There's a Jerusalem at the beginning of the book, and what does he say? How the faithful city has become a whore. It, it, it's, a, it, it's corrupted in every way. You look to me like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's, that's who you are in my eyes. And there's a remnant, of course, but, but basically, you're Sodom and Gomorrah. And then by the end of the book, what Isaiah is proclaiming uh, from the Lord is, rejoice in Jerusalem. I've restored Jerusalem. In fact, not only have I restored Jerusalem, but all the other nations are coming to Jerusalem, as it were, and receiving my blessing. That's how they get my blessing, is through Jerusalem. So, so then the question we have to ask ourselves, and this is what we're going to see for however long we have to, to spend on Isaiah. The question we're going to ask is, how does the faithless city in chapter 1 become the faithful city of chapter 66? How does the Jerusalem that looks like Sodom become the Jerusalem that is bringing blessing to all the nations? And that, that arc, that story, the answer to that question 
is really what Isaiah ends up being all about. And what we will see is, well, there are a lot of answers to that question. How does, how does it move from faithless to faithful? There are a lot of answers, and they're very personal and practical answers for us. But at the heart of it, interestingly enough, is that the Lord is going to restore Jerusalem by sending his servant to Jerusalem, and, and, and it, it flows out from there. So, so, none of the pieces of Isaiah, some of which are very familiar to us, some of which are kind of, we don't know how they fit. None of those pieces is incidental, because each of those pieces of Isaiah's uh, ministry is, is really getting at that issue. How does God do this? How does he move Jerusalem from faithless to faithful, from a curse to the nations, or just like the nations, to a blessing to the nations? Um, and Isaiah reveals that, while at the same time um, revealing the contemporary message to the Jerusalem of his day. So in other words, the way that God accomplishes that big picture question is all wrapped up in these small scale questions of faith that, that confront Israel during the time of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And so those, those questions are bound together. And, 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 and they can't, you know, it's, it's not just one or the other. There's a kind of a big question. And then there's these incidents that happen, um, and, 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 and both of them are woven together. So, so it, it's, it's an immensely, um, you know, endlessly fascinating book, but, but, but that's the big picture, I think, when, when we come right down to it. All right, we, we've got to go. So let me, let me pray. Father, once again, thank you for your word. Uh, what a gift it is to us. We need it. Um, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, and we would be in the dark without it. So use your word, shine a light on our lives, and, and, and also help us as we come to it that we might interpret it rightly and handle it well. And we, we pray all these things in Jesus' name.